0: Well, I am uh, looking forward to our last session here together. Um, Fair warning, I'm going to ask for a little bit of dialogue here in just a few moments. Um, So I'm not going to ask you to share anything super personal. Don't worry. But uh, just so that you don't look at me crazy when I look to you here in a second. I do want to begin, though, by reminding you of one thing I said briefly. You know, one of the things that I appreciate about Romans but that also scares me is that I think it's designed to change us. Remember, we spoke of this briefly. Um, I don't think Romans is a book that's supposed to leave us the same. I think that studying Romans can indeed change you. Um, I think that when you really have dug in and worked your way through the logic of the book and understood the argument and also begun to live it out and to take it with a certain sense of personalness and seriousness that it should leave us uh, hating our sin more deeply, worshiping God more thoroughly, appreciating the gospel at a new level, knowing Jesus um, loving the church. I think it does all these things in us. And one of the reasons why I have this conviction is that there are accounts throughout multiple phases of church history where the church or an individual found themselves in a place of distance from God and then they recaptured some understanding of the gospel and were different because of that. And it happened actually as a result of engaging Romans. I'll just, one of the many accounts of this from church history I was thinking about today because we're in a Methodist camp right now. And I don't know uh, how well you know the history of the church and different denominations and groups, but the Methodists actually uh, grew out of the work of a man named John Wesley. Is this a name that you're familiar with? You've heard of John Wesley before, maybe some of you. Uh, he was a British guy, an English guy. He had been a, a believer, at least in name, for probably a couple of decades. But he was in a kind of an interesting place with respect to his faith. When he looked back on it later, he would have said he actually wasn't a Christian up until this point. And the point in question is on May 24th, uh, the year 1738. It's always easy for me to remember the date because that's my daughter's birthday. Now, she, of course, came much years later, but you know, May 24th, 1738. He's walking down uh, this this street, Aldersgate Street in London. And he walked by uh, kind of a a building where there's a group of Christians inside. I don't know that it was a church because they were just inside talking. And he, he paused as he walked by and heard voices. And he listened to some of what they were talking about. And they were doing a study on Romans. And they were reading the book of Romans and they were reading some of the comments on Romans from another Christian who has his own story named Martin Luther. And he said as he sat there outside uh, that particular location and listened to those words read, something happened inside him that he couldn't explain. He later on would uh, describe this by using the language uh, of a heart warmed. He says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And I felt in this moment that these great words applied to me, even me. And I felt that I, even I, in that moment, finally became a Christian. And he went on from there to be not just a committed follower of Jesus, but a preacher of the gospel in England and also over here in America. And he founded the Wesleyan and Methodist movements. And whatever you may think rightly or wrongly of these groups of Christians today, in their time the Methodists were a group of people that got their name because they were committed to coming together in communities and to coming up with actual practical strategies for living out the gospel in their own lives and applying it to the lives of others. This happened because one man was transformed by Romans. So, again, I think that Romans has the ability to change us. But I also think it's critical every time we remember that this is true to recall the other side of the truth, which is that it doesn't happen automatically. Like you can't just show up, read it, listen a little bit, and expect to be a different person. There are certain ways in which we have to engage this book. And this is where I'd love to get uh, some of your thoughts. I don't know if you guys are doing discussion questions after this or not. It may depend on how long I talk, so we'll see, right? Uh, But I want to throw up the discussion questions that you may or may not get to, because I want to talk about the first one. And also, I've got some handouts that, um, I don't know where they ended up. I don't know if you've got those up here. Where are they? They're over there. So Scott's going to pass these around. You don't even need to look at these right now. Um, We're not actually going to talk through them in great detail. One of them we may pray through a little later on, but they're really resources that I want to put in your hands that may prove of benefit to you in your own engagement to Romans. And I'll talk about them at different points Um, uh, as we work our way through these things. But the question that I'd love to hear from you um, is, so far in your study of Romans, now I know not all of you probably have been in the you know with the table all first semester studying Romans, but a decent portion of you have been. And I imagine most of you have at least gone a couple of times. Here's what I'd love to hear from you, if you wouldn't mind sharing with me. In, in the study of Romans so far, that you guys have engaged in as a group, the table, uh, this particular school year, what would you say is something that you've done well to engage Romans in a way that changes you. And if you're being honest, what would you say is something that you could have done better this last semester? As, as y'all as a group have studied this book. So what's something that you think you personally have probably done pretty well? Or you can pick either one. Or what's something that you think you could have done better than you did? I thought your hand was going up. Yeah, it's like in class, they're very afraid to scratch their heads because I'll call on them. Yeah, what, what's up? Yes. You could have taken notes better. Taking notes is an important part. It's a hard part because it's like, what do you write down from Romans, you know? But I like that. Something. And one of the things, I love that you guys have your table journals. I've seen some of those. It actually looks like a Hebrew letter. I don't know if that was on purpose or not, but whatever. You have your table journals and you take notes in those. Awesome. I would also encourage you too, after you take notes, you know, during a learning session, try to grab that like one thing that matters, really stuck out to you from the text you're studying. Write that in the margin of your Bible. So, the next time you're flipping through the word, you can see that there. Good. Okay, taking notes. Absolutely. Man, big part of that. Uh, what else? Something that you've done well or something you could have done better? Yeah. Do you really? Oh, good. Yeah, I'm good. Absolutely. Good. To have the conversations outside of the session is, is critical, for sure, man. For for so many reasons. Some of which are obvious. Some of which we may not even understand. But good, excellent. What else? Something you've done well. Something you could do better. How many of you are shy and nervous in this moment to talk to me in front of all these people? Any of you? Now you're afraid to raise your hand because I'm going to call on you. Let me do We don't need to talk for a long time, but we need to break this ice because I can't have this be an uncomfortable moment between us. I don't mind silence, but I want you to be free to talk. So here's what I want you to do. On three, I want you to say um, your middle name, okay? All right. One, two, three. Okay. You have two middle names. Well done. Now I want you to say, uh, what's like the goofiest color you can think of? Color. Chartreuse? That's what I think. Seafoam green. Seafoam green. All right. Um, Did we do this the other day? We didn't do this the other day, right? Okay, on three, I want you to say seafoam green. All right, one, two, three. Seafoam green. All right, and then let's pick a vegetable. Let's pick a cucumber, because cucumber is fun to say. Um, Let's say, um, on three, say cucumber. One, two, three. Cucumber. All right, so since I want to all speak together, instead of everybody all doing your own middle names, let's go in honor of Elf with the word Francisco, okay? So can we all say... Francis, That's fun to say. Yeah, Francisco. So on three, I want us to say Francisco Seafoam Green Cucumber. Can we do that? Can you do that with me? Yeah. If I see you not doing it, I will embarrass you. Okay, so Francisco Seafoam Green Cucumber all together. One, two, three. Francisco Seafoam Green Cucumber. Here's the thing. No matter what you say, it cannot be dumber than what you just said. So now that we've broken that ice, Here's the question. I want to hear from a couple more of you for real. What is something that you've done well or that you know somebody else did well, if you don't want to talk about how good you are, and what's something that you could have done better? Yeah. I kind of tried to like keep in mind that this is a real letter. But, like, what people oh, to yeah. Say to for the story. Good. Amen. Yeah. It is a real, yeah, real, the real folks here. Sometimes chapter 16 matters in that sense. When you get to that, I don't know if you guys have read it all through the very end. But it's just there's a bunch of names. Those are real, real people. Very good. Okay, what else? Mm-hmm. Some people memorize Romans 8. Oh, some of you guys are memorizing Romans 8? That's awesome. Good for you. Is, are you being shy, like you've done it too, but you don't want to like, try to act spiritually proud or something? I'm struggling. That's all right, man. It's always a struggle. Good. Good for you. Struggling means you're trying, and trying is, um, generally speaking, better than not. So good try. Anything else? What is something you... Yes, ma'am. I um, think instead of like leaving what we're like, learning at the table mm-hmm. and like not thinking about it too so much that I leave, like spending one time praying through it like when I get home mm-hmm. is really powerful. Okay. Hey, yes, praying through it when we go home. Actually, Yeah, continuing to kind of percolate on a little bit and let those thoughts stay there in your mind. good. Good. Okay, last one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it frames the entire letter. And yeah. that like, influences how I see, it, like how I'm interacting mm. with classes or work or just like as I'm out. Mm-hmm. Just always having the gospel on the mind. Always having the gospel on the mind. That's going to perfect transitionally into the first thing I want to say. I really do, every now and then I try to pause and just uh, kind of solidify my core convictions and the things that the Lord has been teaching me. And one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately, I try to put it into a sentence because then I can really think it through. And one of my growing convictions is that the gospel is always the answer to whatever is going on in and around me right now. That's never not true. Now, sometimes you need to like, build on the gospel or dig deep into the gospel to see how it connects, but it's always the answer to the, whatever is going on in and around me right now, including this particular moment of teaching and learning. The gospel is the answer for this moment to become what we want it to be and, even more importantly, what God wants it to be that we may not even be aware of. So this last session is going to be a little bit of a different feel. It's not so much a sermon as it is some maybe like older brotherly advice on studying Romans. I don't anticipate saying anything radically different than what you already know. But sometimes the most important things we can hear are the things that we already know, but we need to be reminded of because we're not necessarily putting them into practice. And when it comes to this question that we, and this is something, that, again, as we, as Scott and Drew and I talked about, what do we want this whole weekend to be? It's in the middle of this study. What can we do? And, and we agreed that it would be good to just pause for this final session and for me to share some thoughts with you on what I've learned about how to study Romans well, what I've learned about how to learn Romans. And so I've got three things for you, um, pretty clean and, again, um, well, whatever, we'll just get into it. The first one builds on the point you just made, I think. And the first thing I would say is, you got to let Romans shape your actual thoughts. So you can see the statement, you got to let Romans shape your thoughts. But I want to put actual thoughts in there because I want to emphasize the things that you actually think about. And here's my, here's, here's my conviction on this. I, I think it's very appropriate for, appropriate for us to pay attention to our beliefs. I don't think you can outlive your beliefs. I think it's, it's critical to have an understanding of who God is and what the gospel is and be able to articulate that. And, you know, I believe that God is one and three. I believe He's triune. I believe that God is good. I believe that God is immutable and unfathomable. And I believe that Jesus died for my sins. Those uh, beliefs are like fundamental to the living of a good life. But what I've learned recently is not so much the importance of our beliefs. It's that, uh, do you ever wonder why there's a disconnect between your beliefs and your life or beliefs and your feelings? Like, given what I believe, I shouldn't be feeling what I'm feeling in this moment. I think sometimes your thoughts are the missing link. The important thing is not just that we get our beliefs in order, but that we manage our thoughts well in light of the gospel that our actual thoughts in any given moment are driven by the truth of what's been revealed to us in places like Romans. So you think about the truth of justification. I would imagine that most of you, not all of you, I realize you're at different points of faith, and some of you are probably even still wrestling with the claims of Jesus on your life, and you're not even yet sure if you want to surrender your life to him. Totally understand that. Like, that's a big, literally the biggest decision that you'll ever make. Most of you, I think, probably can lean into the idea and agree with the idea that you're justified by grace through faith apart from your accomplishments or success or popularity. But in those moments when you fail, like some of you are gonna get broken up with over the course of the next couple months, and it's gonna stink. Some of you are gonna fail classes this semester. Or some of you who want an A are not gonna get an A. Some of you are gonna put your name in the hat for a job or for an internship or for a residency, and it's gonna go to somebody else. You're gonna swing and miss. You're gonna have conversations with your parents that like at the end of the conversation, You're as unsettled with the world as you've ever been. You're going to have dark moments all alone in your room. And nobody else really quite understands what's going on because you don't even really quite understand what's going on. And you're frustrated with that last part in particular because if you could just understand what's happening in your mind and heart right now, then maybe you could fix it. Like whatever it might be, you're going to have moments where you're not thinking about the fact that you're justified by grace through faith. And if you want Romans to change you, you've got to bring it into your thought life in that moment. I love the metaphor that's given to us in 2 Corinthians 10, where Paul says that you have to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. What that means in these various moments is that you start by recognizing that whatever it is you thought you needed and couldn't live without but you don't have, you don't actually need that to be a full person in God's universe, to be loved, to be justified. Because you are defined by what God thinks of you and what God thinks of you is determined by the cross. Let that shape your thoughts. Think about the lesson that you guys learned on Thursday night, uh, towards the end of Romans 8, about how all things work together for the good of those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose. This idea that it's not true that everything happens for a reason, but it is true that every, anything can be redeemed. Like, nothing can happen in your life that God cannot redeem. But this only makes sense from an eternal perspective. Like, our lives only make sense from the perspective of eternity. You believe that this is true, I think, but we don't often think about it. And then any given moment or any given day, whether it's a positive experience that we're super excited about or a negative experience that we're not, the question is, are we evaluating this, evaluating this moment in light of eternity? Like, are we actually thinking about the fact that this moment only makes best sense in the light of the long story of the universe? Because if we're not, it's like you're reading to the middle. Some of y'all do this in some of your you know, courses where you, you ever do this either in high school or, or in, you know, at, in, at university where like, you have a reading assignment but you don't have time to read the book so you've got to figure out how to understand like, where the book is going. What do you do when you need to, in a very quick pinch, figure out where the story's going? Spark notes? Yeah. Are you the beginning, middle, and the end, right? If you want to know how the story plays out, you read to the end. That's the one part you make sure you don't do without. You don't just pick up chapter 4, and oh, if I read chapter 4, then I'll understand. No, because you don't know where the story is going. And if you evaluate a moment in light of the moment, you can say till you're blue in the face that you believe in eternity, but if your thoughts aren't governed by eternity, then it's not going to change you. I think you probably get the point. Let me talk a little bit about what you've got to do in order to be able to be a person who does this. For this to work, for your thoughts to be shaped by Romans, you've got to read Romans. Well, maybe I should just hard stop there. You've got to read Romans. But I want to say you've got to read Romans in a certain way. Meditation really is a good word here. Biblical meditation. Not like weird Eastern meditation. Biblical meditation. It means, first of all, you've got to read it, you've got to reread it, and you've got to read it repeatedly. It's not enough just to think that the Bible is legit and true. How many of you think that the Bible's true? If you can believe what it says, yeah. Um, I remember hearing a story, you guys probably heard this story before, I remember hearing a story about a young guy who wanted to study theology at, uh, he, he wanted to study theology at this university that was a little bit liberal in its theological thinking, and he, his father was like a very conservative guy. Not a super kind person, but like super tight, fundamentalist type of character. And he was, didn't have a good relationship with his son. He was never warm with his son at all. And as soon as his son said he wanted to study theology at this liberal school, the father would just always berate him. You want to go to that liberal school, they're going to fill your head with a bunch of liberal ideas. You're going to come back not even believe in the Bible. You're going to come back denying creation. You're going to deny Jonah. You're going to deny the resurrection. That's all he would ever say. Well, the son was persistent, and so he still went to that particular school, and as you can tell, he didn't have a great relationship with his dad, so he didn't come home for like a couple of breaks. It was probably 18 months before he came home. So about a year and a half later, he walks in the door, and the first thing his dad says is not, hey, buddy, good to see you. It's not, I love you. It's not, how's it going? It's, so what happened? Did you go to that liberal school, and they fill your head with those liberal ideas? You probably don't believe Jonah. Probably don't believe creation. Probably don't don't believe the resurrection. And the son said, actually, dad... Uh, I think Jesus rose from the dead. But you know what? Yeah, I know you love Jonah. You're right. I I don't think the story of Jonah actually happened. I think it's a parable. I think it teaches an important lesson. But I don't think the man was actually swallowed by a fish. Dad's like, oh, see, this was exactly what I knew was going to happen. I told you this would take place. You don't even believe the Bible anymore. And the son said, you know what? Actually, Dad, like, I know how much that story means to you. So I tell you what, since it's one of your favorite Bible stories, why don't you go grab your Bible? We'll read the story of Jonah together. You can tell me why you think it has to be read as a literal event, and I'll tell you why I think it can be read as a parable. The dad's like, all right, I'm up for a fight. So he goes and gets his Bible and blows the dust off of it, you know, and he flips to Jonah, can't find it. He's a little bit flustered by this because he knows the Bible, he knows where Jonah's supposed to be, but he eventually just kind of turns to the table of contents, finds the page number, flips over to Jonah. It's not there. So what the, it's not even in my Bible, looks closely, realizes that somebody cut the pages out of his Bible. Somebody cut the book of Jonah out of my Bible. At that point, the son said, Yeah, Dad, uh, it was me a couple years ago. So let me ask you a question, Dad. What's the difference between me denying the Bible and you ignoring it? That's a pretty good question. We're a group of people who believe the Bible. One more time, how many of you believe the Bible is true? How many of you think that the Bible gives us wisdom for our lives? that if we read it a lot, it would actually make our lives better. Anybody believe that? How many of you read the Bible like all the time? Don't raise your hand for this one because it's not a competition. How many of you read it every day and soak your mind in it on a regular basis? It, It can't do its work in you if you just leave it on the shelf. It can't do its work in you if you engage it no more than if it wasn't actually there. Here's a question for you. If you read the Bible, and I don't, I man, I'll clarify what I don't want this moment to be here in a second, but let me just ask the question. If you read the Bible as often as you take a shower, how would you smell? Let me flip that around because I just said that wrong. If you take a shower as often as you read the Bible, that's the question. How would you smell? Swing and a miss. Think about that though. Like, would you stink? Now, here's why I'm hesitant. The last thing I want to do is to try to guilt you into reading the Bible. I don't think that you should feel guilted into reading the Bible ever, so please don't hear me saying it like that. Um, I don't think reading the Bible, not reading the Bible, is so much like evil. It's just dumb. Like we want our lives to be a certain kind of good that comes from when we align them with God's purposes for us. So you get the point. You've got to read it. And you can't just read it and walk away either. You've got to linger You've got to think. The part of meditation is thinking it through and reading in a reflective manner. And I'm going to tell you guys, you're you're in for a challenge when you first get back because you're about to get to Romans chapters 9 through 11, which, don't be discouraged, is probably one of the most confusing parts of the whole letter, if not the whole New Testament. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't actually feel like it's that relevant to you. Literally, Paul's wrestling with the question of how can Jesus be the Messiah if the Jews don't believe? That's the question of Romans 9 through 11. Because all the while, so far in the letter, he's been really arguing that God saves all sinners, Jew and Gentile, by grace through faith, apart from the law, just like he said he would. And he's celebrating this. And the first text you guys are going to look at, chapter 8, verses 31 to the end of the chapter, is awesome. It's all about proving God's love and about how nothing is held back from you and this wonderful thing. But then he turns to chapter 9, all of a sudden Paul's crying. And the reason he's crying is because he has to, he has to address a problem. The Jews don't believe. How is it that God can save us through Jesus in a way that is faithful to his Old Testament promises if the Jews look at this and say, no, we're not interested in this? No, I don't know how often you think about this. I don't know that you like go to bed at night wondering, how can the gospel be true if most Jews don't believe in Jesus? It's probably not the most relevant question to you. And this is where I'm saying you have to meditate on scripture long enough to recognize that it answers questions that you may not be asking, but the point that is being assessed is precisely what you need to hear. Because what Paul is saying is not just, hey, think this way about the Jews and the Gentiles. What Paul is saying is every time God makes a promise, he keeps that promise. He is always faithful to everything he has said. And you will think about this if you meditate on Scripture, but you're not if you won't. One last word picture. I'll try not to screw this one up, and then I'll move on to another point. Imagine if you... You, ever, you guys ever been like freezing, freezing, freezing cold? You ever been so cold you're angry? You know what I'm talking about? Where you're just like, you just like, you're mad. Now, have you ever been beyond that so cold that you're scared? Anybody had this experience before? Some of you have. Most of you haven't. So imagine that you're like, I don't know, up in, one of you is from Michigan, right? Where's my girl from Michigan? Where are you at? I can't, she left. The girl from Michigan left. Let's say we went to Michigan to uh, visit, you know, where her family's from, and you're, I don't know where her family's from in Michigan, but forget her, let's say we're up there, no offense to her, she's wonderful, I'm sure, you're in a forest in Michigan, right, and it's snowy, and there's a blizzard, and you're hiking, because it's super fun and interesting to do these sorts of things, but you're kind of dumb, and you're doing it alone, and you realize that you've been out for a long time, and you kind of lost your way, because you can't tell your tracks, because the snow's coming down, and you're actually, like, past the point of being angry cold, you're actually terrified that you're going to die out in the snow, and you're never going to be able to talk to another human being again, and you're making your way through this forest of snow, and you you're just so cold, and you don't know what to do. And you look up ahead, and you see what looks like smoke coming out from the top of the trees. And you think to yourself, this can't be. This is amazing. You start to make your way to the smoke, through the trees, over the snow. You don't fall in. And as you get close, you recognize that there is indeed a house. And you go up to this house with a chimney that smoke is coming out of, and you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to bust through this thing. and get to that fire, and you look inside the front door, and sure enough, like there's a fire, and it's blazing. And it's precisely the thing you need. And you walk up to the door wondering if you're going to have to break the glass, but you don't because it's unlocked. And you open the door and you walk inside and you throw it on your gloves and you stand in front of the fire and you count to 15. And then you turn around and you walk back outside. Let me ask you a question. Are you warm? No. And is the problem the fire? Hardly. Like you have to linger by the fire if you want it to make you warm. And I know it's a little bit of a goofy picture, but I think you probably get the point. I fear sometimes that our engagement with Scripture is sort of like making our way through a freezing cold forest, finding a warm fire, tossing down our gloves, count to 15, turn around, walking away, and expecting it to have done its work in our lives. And then we question, and then we wonder, like, why isn't God doing anything? I think the first thing that you've got to do if you want Romans to change you is you've got to let Romans shape your actual thoughts. And to do that, you have to engage the text in a meaningful way. Let me point out to you one of the resources that's been provided for you. There's two things, two sheets that I gave you. One of them is called How to Redeem the Routines Using Romans as Your Guide. Um, One page, one side of that is just text from Romans, I believe. It should be two-sided. So flip over to the other side of that thing. How to Redeem the Routines Using Romans as Your Guide. I'm not going to talk through this in detail, but I want to tell you what it is. This was something I uh, put together some months ago and I try to practice every now and then where it essentially takes verses from Romans and applies them to different parts of the day. So like the things that you're typically going to do in a given day. You're going to wake up, right? You're going to do that. You're going to hit the alarm and get up. You're going to go brush your teeth and take a shower. And you're going to put clothes on. Hopefully you're going to put clothes on. You're going to put clothes on. You're going to go to work or you're going to go to class or something. And then at some point in the day, you're going to take a break, maybe for lunch or something you got to eat. And then later on, you're going to come back to your place of living from work or from school. And then you're going to go to bed. Basically, at all these different moments, it puts verses from Romans that are relevant to that given moment and encourages you to pray through them. You certainly don't have to use this, but I would strongly encourage you to consider either using this or making your own guide. And the idea is not, i got to be legalistic about the fact that I have to talk to God at every single break in my day. No, the point is, to become persons whose thoughts are guided by the gospel and to use Romans as our guide since you're studying it. We could say more on that, but let's move on. The second thing that you've got to do if you you want to engage Romans in a way that changes you is you have to let Romans shape your actual actions. Thinking alone is not going to change you. Studying alone is not going to change you. Listen, I teach at a Bible college, all right? i got a lot of students who are educated beyond their present level of obedience. They they know the Bible well, but that doesn't mean they're more like Jesus yet. Because you don't change just by knowing the right answers. You change as you put some of these things into practice. Let's take a quick detour. We'll come back to Romans in a moment. You see this in the way that Jesus interacted with people who were interested in following him? You see this, for instance, in the way in which he called some of his first disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. A couple of, um, about a year ago now, I had an opportunity to go to uh, Japan and uh, work with some, actually one of Drew's cousins and some other people over there who are, are planting churches. And we had a long, con- we had a, a conversation after the Sunday morning service about apologetics, defense of the faith, reasons to believe. And I wasn't the one doing the class; one of my friends was. But we were all kind of sitting around, and then afterwards, we were talking to this young man who was—he um, was from Australia, but he lived in Japan—and he was a skeptic. He was a philosophy major, super, super bright guy. And he was, um, he, he, he was trying to figure out whether or not he wanted to believe in God and become a Christian. And what's funny is he said things like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be a Christian in about a month. I just don't really know yet, <laughs> which is such a funny thing to say. Anyway, we're like, well, like, what's holding you back? You know? And he said, well, I just, I feel I just, I've read the Bible, but I feel like I need to read the whole thing. I'm like reading through it right now, but I'm not finished. I feel like I need to read the whole thing before I really decide if I'm going to be a person who jumps in with this Jesus character. And we just had a really long, interesting, meaningful conversation with him. Anyway, then we we went home, and a couple of days later, probably a week or two later, we got a text message that said, I'm trying to remember his name, I can't remember his name, we'll call him Arthur, because his name was something like Arthur. Hey, Arthur decided to get baptized. He He was reading through the Bible, he came to Matthew 4.20, and he was like, that's it. And I'm thinking to myself, what the heck does Matthew 4.20 say, you know? And so I open it up, and it's actually the story of Jesus calling Peter, Andrew, James, and John for the very first time. I don't know if you remember the story, but Peter and Andrew are brothers, and they're out in a boat. And Jesus comes to them, and he calls them to get out of the boat, come up to the water, and follow him. Leave their boats behind and go. And it says, literally, this is the verse that hit him. I think it was 420, or 420. It says, at once they left their nets and followed him. Jesus says, hey, if y'all want to be a part of what I'm doing, you've got to go. You think about another fairly well-known story about Jesus and his interaction with the rich young ruler. You guys heard this story before? This man comes up to Jesus who has a lot of money and he says, hey, uh, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know the commands, and he lists them off. The guy's like, well, I've done all those since I was a boy, so maybe I'm good, right? And Jesus says, no, one thing you lack. You need to go sell everything you have and give your possessions to the poor, and then come and follow me. Notice what Jesus is doing. He's saying you have to act first, There's a really interesting verse in John chapter 7, verse 17, where Jesus is talking to some people that are skeptical of whether or not he's actually the Messiah. And what Jesus says is essentially not, let me give you some reasons to believe. What Jesus says is basically, if you choose to do the will of God, then you will know. Then you will know that I am the Messiah. See, one of the things that I think we have to understand about the way in which our bodies and minds work is that they work together. One of the things I think you need to understand, and you can think about this when you're looking at this little graph here, we kind of have this sense that our, uh, that our thoughts shape our actions, right? Our mind shapes our body. The things that you think about determine the actions that you're going to take. But you need to also understand that the things that your body does are going to shape the way you think. It's, the, it's a cycle. This is why, to come back to Romans in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, consecrate your bodies as a living sacrifice. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And in the next verse, he says, be transformed by the renewal of your minds. I think he's telling us, listen, your body has a role to play, and your mind has a role to play. And I think it's actually fairly important that he first goes with your body. Because you can think your way through whatever. You can can think all day long as hard as you want. But if you don't actually engage in obedience with your body, if you're living in a way that isn't consistent with what Jesus is calling you to do. It's not that like Jesus is mad at you, so he's not going to talk to you. It's that you're putting yourself in a position where you can't actually understand the truth about who God is and who you are and what he's done for you. You can't actually be transformed until you obey. Let me show you one thing from Romans. We're not spending a whole lot of time in the text, which I don't love, but again, the purpose is to frame your engagement of the text. Open up to Romans, the very first, uh, very first opening of it, chapter, chapter 1. So I'm going to pick it up in, in uh, verse 5 of the, of the letter. Paul is introducing himself and he's talking about his own call to be an apostle. And he says, through Christ, this is verse 5, chapter 1, Romans 1, 5. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles, all the nations, that's us, to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. I don't love that translation. You probably have a better one. It literally is just the obedience of faith. Obedient faith, faithful obedience. That's the idea there. Then I want you to flip over to the very end of the letter. So chapter 16, verses 25, 26, and 27. This is how the letter closes. Paul says, Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forever, through Jesus Christ. Amen. I want you to notice that Paul ends his letter about grace with a call to obedient faith. Because if you understand that grace comes from an actual person who is present with you even though you don't deserve it, then it will begin to make sense to you how grace, when received, always leads to obedience. And how stepping into obedience is often the next thing you need to do to receive the grace. One of the things I think that can be beneficial here is that you allow Jesus to make this concrete in a way that forces you to be perfectly honest with yourself. If I knew you better, I'd ask you to answer this question. I don't want to make you uncomfortable. I'll leave it to leaders who know you better. But just imagine if Jesus literally walked into the room right now. He makes His way up here to... I don't know if Jesus walks fast or slow, but He makes His way up to the front of the room, kind of surveys the room for a little while, and comes to you and says, we need to talk about some things and you know what they are. Let's go. As soon as you get outside, what is it that you're going to talk about? If Jesus came up to you and said, it's time to make that change that you've been avoiding, what is it that He would have in mind? I'm not going to ask you to say it out loud, but I'm curious. How many of you have a pretty good sense of what he might want to talk about? Anybody in the room? Like if If you want to take the next step in your engagement of Romans, the answer for you is not just go read Romans again. It's deal with whatever it is that Jesus would be calling you to do because it's not theoretical. He's actually calling you to do that. From a practical standpoint, I want to give you guys a couple of encouragements in this regard. I want to encourage you to make this the emphasis of your engagement of the text when you get to chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15. Because the first part of Romans that you've studied so far really doesn't give you a whole lot of specific concrete things to do, does it? It more is about reshaping your understanding of God and the world and your place within it. Once you get to the end, he starts to be really concrete. And it's going to come at you fast. Fast. It's going to be a bunch of statements. you know. Never return evil for evil, but only return it with good. Show hospitality toward everyone. Love must be sincere. Honor one another above yourselves. And as you go through these, the temptation is going to be, oh yeah, 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 I know that that's something that we're supposed to do. No, stop. Like, what are you going to do? And as a community, one of the ways in which you can see that this takes place is to get into the habit of asking one another the question, what are you doing differently this week because of what we're learning in Romans? That is a wonderful question to take to these conversations that you're having about this book. So the first thing is that you need to let Romans shape your actual thoughts. The second thing is that you need to shake, let Romans shape your actual actions. The third thing is you need to let Romans shape your actual loves. We could also say desires, but I like the word loves. We could also say values, but I like the word loves. What are you into? What do you value? What do you desire? What do you love? I'm going to be brief on this because I'm looking at the clock and I think you guys probably need to get out of here. But I want us to notice that our world trains us to love me. We could use any number of examples in this regard. <laughs> probably one of the goofiest is like the toothpaste aisle at Walmart or the shampoo aisle. That's even worse. You ever go get shampoo and just actually pause and realize how many options are available to you? What is it? What particular combination of chemicals would you like to clean your hair with? And oh, by the way, what particular smell would you like to accompany this particular cleaning of your hair or whatever it is? What kind of toothpaste do you like? Do you like the taste of baking soda? Probably not. How about spearmint, peppermint? There's probably cinnamon, bubblegum, you know what I mean? Like whatever. And when you get your bubblegum shampoo or bubblegum, no, bubblegum shampoo, that's weird. <laughs> when you get your bubblegum toothpaste, this is my kids, like do you want Black Panther or do you want Star Wars or do you want Minions? Or do you want Minnie Mouse? You know what I'm saying? Like, you get to tailor these experiences to you. And I'm not even saying that that's evil. Like I have no moral qualms with the shampoo or the toothpaste aisle at Walmart. <laughs> but if you want us to recognize the way in which this shapes us as people, to just sort of expect that it's natural, that I can have whatever the heck I want to have. I actually even have some worry. The only, only thing I am actually I worry about a little bit about, the, way, the content that we've chosen to cover this weekend, is that I've made it all about you. You are loved. You are justified. Now I'm obviously okay with this, and so are the so the other guys, because at the end of the day, like if you don't understand who you are, then none of this matters. But at some level, part of what you have to understand is that Romans is not designed to continue bringing your attention back to yourself. It's actually designed to draw your attention away from yourself. It's designed to reorient your heart, to draw your attention to God. Do you love God? Do you find it valuable to think about God? Do you think it's just as interesting to learn something new about God as it is to learn something new about yourself? Maybe you guys aren't as annoyingly self-centered as some of the wonderful, I love my students, wonderful young people I get to work with, but like, man, you get them talking about themselves, and they can go all day long, whether it's the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs or the Color Code or whatever it might be. Just love learning about yourself. Start to talk about God, and the eyes start to blaze over a little bit. Do you love God? Do you love the lost? Romans 10 is going to force you to ask this question. Do you actually believe that eternal destiny is at stake and how people respond to Jesus? And if you do, don't do you care? Like, does your heart go out? I don't want you to go around to a bunch of people you know who you don't have a relationship with and start talking about if you die tonight, where would you go? I do not want you to do that. But I want you to want them to come to know Jesus in the way that you come to know him, a saving way. And I want you to look for opportunities. I want you at least to, to like want to try. And not, it's not about me. Romans calls us to try. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? Do you love the lost? And in a really weird way, like Romans 11 is going to ask you, do you love the Jews? Not in a political sense, but like, you realize that our faith comes from Israelites. Jesus was a Jewish person who came to save his own people. Like, have you ever even thought about How sad it is that a lot of Jesus' own countrymen don't believe in him? Does this break your heart? Romans will force you to think through what is it that's important to you? What do you love? Do you love the church? That's what Romans 12 through 16 is all about, this, this body of Christ, the church. Do you love the church? Do you love the people who are different than you, the people who are older than you, the people who are younger than you, the people who don't like the same music as you, the people who don't play the same games as you, who aren't into the same jokes as you? Not do you like the church. I honestly couldn't care less if you like the church. A lot of y'all go to church led by Jim Johnson. It's hard to like Jim Johnson. Let's just be real, you know. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Jim is seriously one of my favorite people in the world. Actually, both of those statements are true. He is one of my favorite people in the world. I owe him more than I could articulate, certainly without crying. But he also is sometimes hard to like because he's Canadian, and Canadians are prickly. You know what I'm saying? But it's not about whether you like the church. It's about whether you love the church. It's about your desires, your desires drive you. Your heart drives you. That's biblically what the heart is. It's it's the thing that drives you. It's the direction. It's the arrow. It's the arrow coming out of you. What is it pointed to? What do you want the most? One of my favorite stories from the ancient world is supposedly it's about Aristotle. I've never been able to find it in his writings, but I've not read everything the dude wrote, so it's probably in there. But according to this story, you guys know the name Aristotle, Greek philosopher. He's actually a pretty big, strong dude too. He's kind of an interesting character. And um, his ethics book is is pretty brilliant. At any rate, one time this young guy comes up to him, he's kind of a punk, kind of a punk kid, smarter than all of his peers, you know, comes up to Aristotle and says, uh, Oh, great and wise Aristotle, I come to you seeking knowledge and wisdom, like that kind of a person, you know. And Aristotle can spot a punk when he sees him, and so he says, Follow me. And he takes him down to a body of water. And he walks down into the water, probably about like stomach to chest high, and he says, What do you want, young man? And uh, the young man says, I want knowledge. And so Aristotle grabs him by the shoulders and he, he like dunks him under the water. And he holds him down for like 30 seconds and he raises him up and says, what do you want, young man? What do you love? He says, I love wisdom, thinking he got the wrong answer, right? So he takes him by the shoulders and he, he holds him down under the water. This is 40, 45 seconds, lifts him back up. What do you want, young man? I want knowledge and wisdom. Holds him back down again, right? <laughs> 45, 50 seconds, like he can tell that he's still breathing, so he's not actually trying to kill him, but he lifts him back up the last time, and the kid just says, air, I just want air. And Aristotle said, when you want knowledge as badly as you currently want air, then you will have knowledge. When you love wisdom the way you currently love oxygen, then you will have wisdom. Our desires are ultimately... What drive everything we do, and you have to let Romans shape your desires. And here's the thing you can learn from something like Romans 12 verses one and two. How do you shape your desires? Well, I don't know if this is irony or poetry or simple fact. You can't act directly on your desires, but you know what actually shapes your desires, what you think and what you do. You can control your thoughts. And you can control your actions. And if you do this in gospel-centered ways, you will find yourself loving God. You will find yourself loving the lost. And you will even find yourself loving the church. If you want Romans to change you, then as individuals and as community, you let it shape your thoughts, you let it shape your your actions, you let it shape your loves. I want to close our time together by engaging in a form of uh, corporate prayer. This is an exercise that um, comes out of Romans chapter 6, actually. Romans 6 is where Paul talks about how because we're baptized and united with Christ, we're free from sin. And in the the middle of Romans 6, verse 11, Paul says to offer or to consecrate the parts of your body to God as instruments for righteousness. And so what I'd like to do right now is to just walk through this prayer together. You can look at the sheet if you want to. Um, I'd actually, you know what, let's do this this together. No one has to speak alone, so try to get your eyes on it. Um, It may take a few minutes, but that's okay. This will be our closing exercise together, and then I'll say just a real brief prayer at the end. I'm going to ask you, even if you think this is weird, to keep your eyes open while I pray for you this last time at the end of this. Uh, But uh, let's go to the Lord by offering the different parts of our bodies to Him. So, starting at the top, we'll just read this through together. Follow my lead. Lord Jesus Christ, we give You our hands. We recognize that because of our union with You in death and resurrection, our hands have been redeemed and empowered for holiness. We celebrate that sin no longer has power over them, and as such, right now, we offer them to You. May we use them for life and not for death. May they be instruments of peace rather than violence, of comfort rather than competition, of unity rather than discord. We give you our hands, for they are already yours. Lord Jesus Christ, we give you our feet. We recognize that because of our union with you in death and resurrection, our feet have been redeemed and empowered to take us along righteous paths. We celebrate that sin no longer has power over them, and as such, right now, we offer them to You. May they move us toward service rather than sin, toward help rather than hurt, toward the world's brokenness rather than away from it, and toward it to redeem rather than to participate. We give You our feet, for they are already Yours. Lord Jesus Christ, we give You our sexual parts. We receive them as a wonderful, good, clean gift with an important role to play in your rule of our world. We recognize that because of our union with you in death and resurrection, our sexual parts have been redeemed and empowered for holiness. We celebrate that sin no longer has power over them, and as such, right now, we offer them to you. May they be instruments of life rather than death, of service rather than selfishness, of lasting joy rather than immediate gratification. We give you our sexual parts, for they are already yours. Lord Jesus Christ, we give you our eyes. We recognize that because of our union with you in death and resurrection, our eyes have been redeemed and empowered to see beauty and truth. We celebrate that sin no longer has power over them, and as such, right now, we offer them to you. May they gaze upon you and through you be trained in ways of life rather than death. May they be given over to humility rather than pride, wisdom rather than folly, holy beauty rather than sensual indulgence. We give you our eyes, for they are already yours. Lord Jesus Christ, we give you our stomachs. We recognize that because of our union with you in death and resurrection, our stomachs have been redeemed and empowered for holiness. We celebrate that sin no longer has power over them, and as such, right now, we offer them to You. May we neither hate them and so neglect what they need, nor inordinately love them and so give them whatever they ask. May our opinion of our stomachs, both visible and invisible, be rooted not in the worldly ways of thinking to which we have died, but in the truth of the Gospel. We give You our stomachs, for they are already Yours. Lord Jesus Christ, we give you our mouths. We recognize that because of our union with you in death and resurrection, our mouths have been redeemed and empowered for holiness. We celebrate that sin no longer has power over them, and as such, right now, we offer them to you. May they be instruments not for tearing down, but for building up. Not for lies, but for the truth. Not for pride, but for prayer. Not for cursing others, but for blessing them in your name. We give you our mouths, for they are already yours. And now, Lord Jesus, I ask once more for your blessing on this group of people. These people made in your image that you created to enjoy you and to walk with you as reflections of your power and goodness. For the seniors, I pray that as they prepare to go on to the next phase of their lives, you would work in ways that, that memorialize the transformation that has taken place over this transitional season. For the juniors, as they prepare to move toward their senior year, and they're kind of in this middle zone of probably having figured out something about the direction that they want to go and the people that they want to become, but still having a bit more time maybe than they would like to have, or maybe looking forward to the time they have and being afraid that it's going to go too fast. I pray for contentment, contentment in the gospel. For the sophomores, often the hardest year of this season of life, distant enough from who they were as children that they feel like grown-ups, but not yet close enough to full adulthood that they have an understanding of their place in the world. As they think through things like calling, vocation, future, I pray that you would give them wisdom. And for the freshmen who are just now getting used to this new season and who probably in some cases have not done super well with the new freedom that they have, in other cases perhaps they have, as they've encountered new joys, new temptations, all sorts of new things, I pray God that you would give them A deep and abiding, not an immature, but a a grown-up passion for you and for your word. And I pray that as they, man, it's going to happen so fast, move on into the next phases of their time in college, that they would drink in the wisdom that's being provided to them by upperclassmen and the adults around them, and that they would very quickly become capable of offering similar wisdom to those who come after them. I pray for the table, this ministry as a group, and ask that you would bless them as they continue to study this letter that Paul penned to the Romans and through which you still speak to us today. It's a long letter, Lord. (laughs) There's a lot in there that we don't fully understand. And uh, sometimes we don't really want to give it the work. You know that. We admit it. Um, I pray that you would bless them as they seek to study and learn and talk and wrestle and question and doubt and trust and submit and obey. I pray that you bless Scott and Drew as they lead this group. I pray that you bless the student leaders and the conversations that they're going to have. Help us to remember, God, that the question is not just do we want to change for ourselves. Help us to remember what's at stake. That whether or not we take the opportunity to become more like your son is actually going to impact those around us in ways that we can't predict. And maybe most importantly, help us to remember that your glory is really the most beautiful and important thing in the world. And that you died to save us, having created us in your image. Help us to glorify you as best we possibly can. I pray for the students with joy and anticipation. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.